It is a very interesting Sunday today. When you combine Spring Forward Sunday with Spring Break Sunday, it equals attendance may have sprung a leak Sunday, all right? So it's good that you guys have gathered today. It's a, it's a much more full house than the 9 o'clock. Uh, we did joke at the 9 that there's extra strength coffee. Literally, we put three extra tablespoons of coffee in it. So if you see some people who are like this, it's because they're caffeined up. Uh, my name is Jason. I'm one of the elders and pastors here at Redemption. If you're a guest with us, I want to say a special welcome to you. Glad you've invested part of your weekend with us. I, I hope and pray and do believe that your investment will pay off very profitable for your heart and your mind and your soul today. Um, we are in the middle of a series through 2 Corinthians called The Great Exchange. This section of the second letter we have to the Corinthians, uh, chapter 5 through chapter 9, we're calling The Great Exchange because in it, God is giving us something of Jesus, all of Jesus, all of his goodness, all of his righteousness, his rightness, but also Jesus' right standing with God. He gives it to you, and you in exchange give him your sin, your guilt, and your shame. Sounds like a pretty good deal. Do you agree? And this is what we talk about when we talk about the gospel itself. And the gospel is the good news that God, in spite of our sin, sin is anything you would say, think, or do that God would not approve of, coming from a heart that is bent away from reflecting and representing him. You're rejecting and rebelling against him. In spite of that sin, God has overcome into the person and work of Jesus Christ who lived for me, lived perfectly in my place, died the death I deserve to die, and beats death, the foe you and I will not beat, so that in him we may have life again. We're restored back to our original design to be God's representatives and ambassadors in the world. This is what we celebrate in the gospel. And this great exchange is taking place and Paul is helping us understand just all the implications of that. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and take it out or turn it on and go with me to 2 Corinthians 6. You just heard those verses read by Stephen. 2 Corinthians 6 verses 1 through 10 is where we're going to be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be Bibles in the seats in front of you. You're welcome to use those. Page 562. And for those of you who follow along on the screen, uh, all the verses that we quote that highlight 2 Corinthians 6 will be on the screen behind me. Before I was a pastor here at Redemption and before that Southway Community Church, I was a youth pastor, got the privilege of working with junior and senior high school students. And to some degree, I still miss that because those kids actually believe that through God's power, they can change the world still. They haven't had all of that adulted out of them. But there were a few students in the ministry that I had in Pearland that drove me absolutely bonkers. I would plead with them, hey, consider what Jesus has done for you. Consider your need for him now. And they would respond with, yeah, that sounds good, but um, not yet. I'll think about that later. Inside, warnings are going off. Red, infrared flags are, are, are waving. You won't think about that later. No, I'll think about it later. No, no I, 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 I know I, I need to, but I need to live my life first. Now, some of you were smirking and laughing as I was describing that, but I have really bad news for all of us today. That's not just a teenage mindset. That's an anyone-everywhere mindset. It's a mindset that does not know a certain demographic or nationality or stage of life. It, it's saying, I know that this is important, but I don't want to think about it now. I will think about it later. 
And for those of us who have been changed by the gospel, we know that the gospel deserves and demands our full attention now. So why do you think it is that more people don't take time to consider the reality of God's love against the backdrop of the reality of their sin? I will argue that part of that reason could be because Christians don't respond to the gospel with a sense of urgency in the here and now. They're not seeing us ready to be a now people. Now, last week, Daniel talked about Paul's tempestuous relationship with the Corinthian church. Lots of emotions regarding these guys and girls. Uh, Sometimes he was angry. Sometimes he was sad. Occasionally, he had joy. But in this section of 2 Corinthians, Paul is delighted to remind them of what's true, that in Jesus Christ, God has restored them back to what Daniel said last week was being fully human, once again being able to be who you were originally designed to be, God's representatives in the world. When God originally made Adam and Eve, they were to reflect him and represent him, to be his ambassadors to all of creation. And once again, because of Jesus, you and I get to do that. But for us, when should we really think about that? When life gets easier? When the job waves kind of level out? Or maybe, parents, it's when the kids are grown and outside and you can be empty nesters? Or kids, maybe it's when you graduate high school. Or students, when you graduate college. That'll be a more seasonable time, even more opportune time. It's a mindset that looms over you and I, no matter what stage of life we're in. This is why 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 10 is a really great gift from God's mind and heart through Paul's pen for us today. Because Paul is going to give us clarity about when we should think about these things. And not just clarity in a life map, here's your next three to five years, but clarity about, look at me for a second, tomorrow. Clarity for, 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 for Tuesday and Thursday. Clarity about when to respond. The big idea from this text, these ten verses are going to show us, is that the time is now to think on and take up the things of God. Don't wait. Two weeks ago, Sean talked about how Paul had an eternal mindset, true, but now Paul is shifting his mindset, not from eternity, but to the here and now, the everyday. And Paul is going to illustrate that mindset in two points that I want to make today. First is found in verse 1 and 2. Because now is the time, experience the grace of God. Experience the grace of God. Paul starts off working together or collaborating with God. That word there is the word we get synergy from. Coming together with God. We appeal to you. Appeal. Another translation may say urge. It's this combination of the weight of a command with the emotional force of a begging. Like, you have got to get this. Parents, how many of you have ever appealed your kid to eat what's on their plate? And how many of you kids are like, shut down, right? No. But it's like, this, you've got to do this. You have got to get this. We appeal to you to not receive this grace, this gift, this favor, this love that's lavished on you that Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 5, 19 through 21, that you are a new creation because of what he's done. Do not receive this grace in vain, empty, meaningless. Don't consider this something meaningless, but consider this something of 
ultimate importance. Don't think, you know what, I can just do this later. This isn't as big a deal as what Paul says it is. Look, I have a shiny new toy or a new app on my phone. Don't receive this grace in vain. The Corinthians would know the message of the gospel through Paul. They had even received it through Paul, but they were being tempted to not believe that Paul was right or good. And they were also being tempted by so-called super apostles. You'll, you'll read that later on in 2 Corinthians. And they had a, a dual message that threatened the purity of the gospel. One group of apostles gave this message of what we would call a license to sin. It doesn't matter what you do. God's going to love you anyway because you're awesome. And what that does is distort the enduring grace of God. God does love you in spite of your sin. It doesn't mean you keep wallowing in it, does it? No. On the other side of the coin, and a reaction to license would be these guys, these super apostles that would promote something called legalism. You have to earn it. You've got to perform. You've got to obey all the rules. You've got to do all the stuff, which is a distortion of the implications of the gospel. The gospel means you conform yourself to, to Jesus, but you forget the grace that's there. This is what's happening in the Corinthian church. They're prone to believe one of these two messages. Isn't it nice to know that we've evolved so much in 2,000 years? Don't receive this in vain. This grace is of maximum value and importance. So consider how would we receive this in vain in the 21st century? And you may have a lot of ideas. I'd like to offer one big one the way that we take this in Houston, Texas, in vain, is that we keep this grace at the periphery of our lives while we invest in doing other things in other places and just have it there. Like we have Jesus in our back pocket when we really need him, but he is not the center of our life. Sure, he's a part of your life, but he's not our life. And no offense, but Jesus did not die to be a part-time Savior and Lord. So Paul says, working with God, don't do this in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, a season of opportunity, I listened to you, and the day of salvation I have helped you. Who is he? Paul's quoting the book of Isaiah. Specifically, Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. It's one of the servant songs that's in Isaiah talking about who Jesus, who Jesus is and prophesying ahead of time who the suffering servant would be in the person and work of Christ. Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. He says, Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor I have answered you. In a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land to apportion the desolate heritages. I have helped you. I have answered you. I have listened to you. Notice, this is God's doing for us what we cannot do for us. I am doing this, God says. Interesting that Paul is actually taking a riff off of first century philosophers who would talk about the appropriate season or time for words. And Paul's like, nah, time is now, not just for words, but to respond to a message. Now is that time. 
And if you look at, at this, what he's quoting, Isaiah 49, the suffering servant is going to restore God's people to God and make salvation available to people all over the world. Back up two verses in Isaiah 49, and you'll see this. He says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation might reach to the end of the earth. This gospel is global for all peoples everywhere. Paul says, Behold, since God is listening and helping, behold, that word means look or pay attention. Parents everywhere this next week, behold, kid, right? Behold. He says, behold, now is the time. Behold, again, emphasizing, today is the day of salvation. The time is now to respond to God's grace. Don't neglect him. Don't keep him at periphery. Respond. By how? Receiving. And if you receive God's grace, now is the time to praise him for it. To remind yourself of what this grace is and what this grace does in you and praise him for the work of that grace. Now is the time. So humbly ask God to reconcile you to himself by the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ. You don't grab God's grace, you receive God's grace. You receive it. But Paul will give us another idea. This is where he's going to actually spend the most of his time, verses 3 through 10, because now is the time, extend it. Extend God's grace. You've experienced it, now you go out and extend it. Paul has already said in 2 Corinthians 5, you're ambassadors. You're, you're, you're having the ministry of reconciliation, showing people the gospel that God will reconcile man and women and children back to himself because of Jesus. So you extend that grace. And he shows you and I a few ways how. One, in verse 3, exhibit godly character. Because your example is noticed. Did you know that people are actually watching how you live? He says, we're not going to put an offense, no obstacles, no stumbling blocks to be in the way. The gospel is offensive enough. Why? Because the gospel says you can't do it. You are a glorious failure at making yourself good enough for God. And that is offensive. Why? Because we're Americans, Jack. We threw tea in the the haba, right? We did it. We rebelled. We're self-made men and women. The gospel is actually, no, you're not. The gospel is offensive enough. Let us not be in the manner with which we present it. Let's not let our manner blur the message. We must display the utmost character and integrity. Are we going to be perfect? No. But how many times have you heard it? I would consider Jesus if you guys weren't such hypocrites. I've heard people say, I don't have a problem with Jesus, I have a problem with his followers. Gandhi was famous for saying, it's not your Christ I have an issue with, it's your Christians. And I know that sometimes that's a cop-out for really dealing with the issue. But let it not be said of us that we will offend people with our manner of life. The gospel is offensive enough. Let's not 
put a stumbling block in their way. We will not hinder you from considering the gospel. Romans 14, in another very cosmopolitan city, Paul talks about in relationship with each other, Romans 14, 13, don't pass judgment on one another any longer. Brothers decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. As we're talking about a relationship with one another, let's not do stumbling blocks. Let's not do it as we extend the gospel. Either way, let's not be stumbling blocks for each other. Instead, let's be on-ramps for one another. Paul is taking this to a healthy extreme. Be careful to keep the gospel, uh, the offense of the gospel primary. Now, the gospel continually changes our character. Where do you see the gospel needing to tweak us? Because it will. So, so exhibit godly character, but then verses 4 and 5, Paul takes a turn. Another way to extend this grace is to endure great hardship. Endure great hardship. Your response to hard times is very critical. Paul's going to do something here. Daniel last week said that Paul was not a lot to look at physically. He probably wasn't. But this is where you see the brilliance and the beauty of Paul with the pen, with the written word. He's very personal here. He's very powerful here. Paul is going to employ something that first century philosophers did often called a virtue list. And they used the virtue list to make themselves more magnificent to people that were going to follow them. But Paul turns the virtue list on the head. Paul says, we're going to commend ourselves in every way. And, and right now, you're thinking he's going to dial it up. Look how great we are. Look at me. I've done three missionary journeys. Wrote nearly half the New Testament. Thousands of converts. I have a guy named Timothy who planted churches and, and stayed with the church. Paul's like, actually, we're going to commend ourselves in a very different way. We're going to use this virtuous in a very different way. We're not going to talk about how awesome we are. We're actually going to commend ourselves because you will suffer for what you love, right? If you love working out, you're going to suffer. Literally. I know, right? If you love this or that, you will stay up late for it. You will wake up early for it. You will suffer for what you love. And Paul says, we love Jesus and the gospel, so therefore we will suffer for it. Enduring for the sake of souls is absolutely worth it. How they see you respond to trials and hardships, guess what? It could actually open up doors for gospel conversations that you once thought were hopelessly locked. And Paul is going to do a very weird thing. He's going to use this virtue list, and he's going to write in a form called the triad. Triad, groups of three. Three groups of three. Under the phrase of great endurance, which you're going to need, Paul employs this triad, first triad he employs, afflictions, trouble, oppression, hardships, meaning distress or calamity, and distress, which means calamities. General wear and tear of life. This is something that all of us are going to experience, this type of trouble. And then triad number two, beatings. The word stripes is employed here. from Isaiah 53, another servant song. By his stripes you are healed. Paul says we're going to get beaten up. Imprisonments. You realize that many of Paul's letters to the churches he wrote while he was where? In jail. Wasn't at a resort. He says riots. This, this, this guy who wasn't much to look at 
had a message that would either inflame people to war or calm them to peace. If you want to read more about the riots that Paul would start, I invite you to look at Acts 16 through 20 and look at the towns of Philippi and Ephesus. Those guys were turned upside down. They were so violently opposed to the gospel that Paul wanted to see their lives changed by it. Then triad number three, labors, sleeplessness, where you would get this understanding of insomnia and hunger, literally foodlessness. Either because Paul was poor, he didn't make a lot of money as a tent maker in the marketplace, or because he was so busy with the work of the gospel, he did not eat. That's part of the calling he received. All sorts of diets nowadays. Don't see the Apostle Paul diet being so popular. How'd you lose the weight? I didn't eat for four weeks, right? This is a part of his calling, and he wasn't shying away from it. The suffering servant that Paul was quoting in Isaiah, Jesus empowers you and I to suffer well for the sake of the gospel. And we do not, we do not run after suffering like it's a lost puppy dog. Here, suffer, suffer, right? But you don't run away from it either realizing that in that, God can be using you and your response to it to open up doors for conversations for where life is found. And so you embrace the suffering, maybe with a sense of expectancy, because what would God want to do in it? Now look at me for a second, church. This is why knowing one another is so vital. Why? It's one of God's chief ways to help and to heal those who are hurting. Is what? One another one another. Already today I've heard about how burdens have been shared and burdens have been borne by other people in this body. doesn't make it go away, but it makes it more manageable. Sharing and bearing burdens, one another. You hear it a lot around redemption, a growing family of grace where brothers and sisters so therefore we're going to watch out and care for one another as we endure great hardships together. Paul says, hey, you want to exhibit godly character, you want to endure great hardship, and then verses 6 and 7, you want to employ some good tools because your readiness for the gospel is essential. Again, the, the mastery of Paul, the, how smart he really is. Philosophers, to be models for their followers, would, would give reasons why they were so great. And Paul says, no, 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 I want you to look at how great God is and what he is using in us to further the gospel. It's not about our greatness. What we have are tools that God is using in us for the greatness of the gospel's reach. And what he's going to do here is a triads, he's going to use pairs. Four pairs, one compound at the end. So three times three is what? Four times two is? Plus one would be nine. Do you see where this is heading? Do you see the mastery of Paul with this? So here's, here's what he says as far as these pairs will go. Purity. Purity. Meaning not being a stumbling block or an obstacle implied with sexual purity. Knowledge, divinely given knowledge. Patience. Ha, have you read this book yet, right? Patience and kindness. Love and action in spite of all that has been endured. Stopping right there, you may be thinking, what would work that in us? It sounds like Galatians 5 and the fruit of the Spirit. 
I'm glad you said that because look at the very next thing. The Holy Spirit. The great empowerer of the Christian. Look at me, church. You're not without today. He didn't just save you and say, you're just going to be left here. Like you have the Spirit of God working in you right here, right now. Is that good news today for you? I hope so. You have the, the power of the Holy Spirit. Genuine love. Sincere love. That, that word love is the meaning at your greatest good, even at my highest cost. It's a word agape, where you get divine love, most clearly seen on the cross with Jesus. For my greatest good, he pays the highest price. So this idea, not just kindness, but going into to love and truthful speech, faithful to the gospel, truthful words, and, and the power of God, which is essential, and then he says, weapons of righteousness. Compound. For the right, for the left. The right, for the left. Most probably, he's talking about a shield and a sword. A shield for the defense, a sword for the offense. As you're not being offensive, but you're going on the offense. Paul would write about this in Ephesians 6. You'll see in the screen behind me, verses 13 through 17, but I want to dive in on verse 16 and 17. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. This gospel deserves and it demands our most intense thought, our most intentional talk as we employ these tools at our disposal that God has given every single Christian so exhibit your, your godly character, endure your great hardship, employ really good tools, and then embrace genuine paradox. Paul lands the plane here in a most unique way. Now, we've had three triads. We've had four pairs plus one, both equaling nine. Now, Paul's just going to go all out and go nine pairs. Nine, nine, nine. Brilliance. And these, this paradox doesn't make sense in the natural. This is where 21st century people will say, I don't get this. This doesn't make sense. How you can be both at the same time. This is where only in Jesus does this make sense. And these pairs he's going to use all point you back to Jesus himself. Let's just dive in real, real fast. Honor and dishonor, slander and praise. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Treat with honor, treat with dishonor. Slander, which is like they're lying about you on purpose. That never happens in our day and age, does it? Or praise, giving you genuine encouragement. This is how they're being treated. Also, he goes on and says, to be imposters yet true. We're treated like deceivers even though we are genuine. We're not really known, but yet we are known. Paul says we're not a brand name here, but we're known by God. We're known by, by his people. Dying, yet behold, again, we live. Dying, we live. Punished, and we're not killed. Perhaps Paul is Thinking back to 1 Corinthians chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 through 10, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. 
We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. Punished, not killed. Dead, yet alive. Sorrowful, always rejoicing. Grieving and in pain, yet always rejoicing. Poor, but enriching many. And if that's not the heartbeat of Paul's writing, especially in the book of Philippians too. If you want to just go for somewhere else, go to Philippians, the book of joy written in prison. When Paul says rejoice even though we're suffering. He says, I want to know that the power of his resurrection becoming like him in his sufferings. This idea of sorrowful yet rejoicing. Poor, enriching many, having nothing yet possessing everything. He's materially on the margins as a tent maker, yet he has it all. Materially poor, and he has every spiritual blessing. Paul knew what awaiting him. Eyes up here, your best life now, not true. And I wasn't making that for a laugh. Like, that's poison. Please hear me. Please hear me. These calls, like, you can have your best life, living your best life. I have news for you. Your best life is later, and that's okay. It's okay. If you're not having your best life, now guess what? It's fine. Right. I'll tell you why. Because of what awaits you. Yeah. And Peter will help us see just how amazing this inheritance is beyond compare. First Peter 1, verses 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Get this. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through Him, through faith, for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, and now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. Look at me. You're guarded by God. guarded by God. Yes, you're experiencing hardship and trials. You're guarded by no less than God himself. Why? For what awaits you is beyond compare. In fact, those good things that we have now glimmers and foretaste of what is to be eternity for you. Paul says, this is a paradox. People will not understand it. These paradoxes all point to Jesus, they only make sense in and through Him. So seek Him now. Trust Him now. I'll repeat, the time is now to think on and take up the things of God. Now. Earlier Paul had an eternal mindset. Now he's talking about the everyday right here, right now mindset. Now. Why put off? Well, God says now is the time. I want to talk to us as a church called Redemption Church. The time is now to experience and extend grace. Like each week when we gather together, we experience the grace of God through these songs we sing, these prayers we pray, the Bible that we we study and learn from, taking the elements of communion, reminding ourselves of the price that was paid for this freedom we enjoy. 
we, we experience that now. But then we experience also in, as we scatter, we gather and we scatter and we experience that grace as we interact with one another in smaller pockets of community. And sure, we extend that grace as we scatter to our workplaces, to our neighborhoods. We extend that grace. But we also extend that grace as we gather here. Because the Lord willing, there will be people here that don't know Jesus yet. And through our warm welcome, through the way we act and, and help them see and understand, they can respond to the gospel by turning to Him and, and, and trusting Him. In our day and age, there are still two Sundays a year that people who were not interested in church would greatly entertain an invitation to church. Second day is Mother's Day. So if you've ever had your bags packed in that guilt trip that mom wants to send you on, won't you come to church with me? You know, that kind of thing. Not that I've ever had that happen to me only in 1996 through 2012, right? <laughs> Mother's Day. But Easter Sunday is the first one. By the way, Easter's five weeks away. There's a growing family of grace children of God adopted by the Father who are also armies to be assembled and deployed, may we go after people in the name of Jesus. Yes? In fact, I'm going to invite you this Easter season to become a pig. What? A pig. But Jason, I'm a vegan. Okay, I'm not talking about diets. P-I-G. Pray. Invite. And then go and give. Go after him and give of your time and your resources and make sure that people come on Easter Sunday where the gospel will be preached you have five weeks to invite, five, five weeks to pray, five weeks to go and get them and, and, and to give. Let's be that as a church redemption. Let's be ready. Now's the time. But for you as sitting in a seat as an individual, when will now be the time to deal with what God has, has been wanting you to deal with? When will now be the time to submit yourself to what he wants for you? When will now be the time to say, whatever you have, wherever you're calling me, I'm yours? When will now be that time? Now is the time. I'm going to invite you to, to bow your heads and, and close your eyes. I'm just going to ask you a few questions that I want you to think about as we get ready for communion. That sin that the Holy Spirit has been pressing on you to confess, to repent, forsake, to put some distance between you and that sin. When will now be the time to do that? That promise of God that you find extremely hard to trust in and believe. When will now be the time to say, God, I do believe, but like the, the man in Mark, the Gospel of Mark, I believe, but help my unbelief. Help me to trust in you and that promise you have for me right here, right now. That person in your life that doesn't know Jesus, that you want them so bad to know him. When will now be the time for you and the Holy Spirit to go on this grand adventure as you go after them with gospel love? Or that guilt and shame? When will now be the time to finally lay it down because you can fully embrace that Jesus really took it? Maybe what God is pressing on your heart is not any of those things. But now is the time. Don't delay. Don't wait. We're going to take just a couple minutes in silence and ask God to reveal to you where do you need to respond to him right 
now? Where do you need to respond now? We'll take just a minute before communion.